Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Father, would you open the word to us today? We would hear the word with, with faith. We would respond with, with hearts full of love and, and obedience. Lord, that which is truly your word, speak to us. I pray that you will touch our hearts. We pray for eyes that see spiritual things and ears that can hear your voice. And I pray for the grace to let your voice, your word come, not mine. You're the discipler. You're the teacher. You're the good one. We've come to you, Jesus. Teach us today. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are. We're going to be where we are is in Acts 16. We're looking at uh, verse 33 through 17. Becoming a Christian will change your life. Not only your inner spiritual life, but your external relational life as well. Not only are you joined to Jesus when you believe, but you become joined to his people. Did you know that? Yeah, in, in, in Corinthians, Paul literally says that you are baptized into the church by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so you and I aren't even given an option in a certain sense. This is totally God's will. There's no plan A or B on the thing. He just says, when you become a Christian, you become joined to his people. This doesn't mean you stop loving your own natural family, but it does mean that you start feeling that same kind of love for those who are your spiritual family. You become committed to them as if they were your own flesh and blood. Did you hear how deep that is? That's not just talk. You literally begin to love your, your, your spiritual family the way you love your physical family, assuming you do. Jesus actually said that the spiritual bond formed between him and us and between those who believe with each other would be closer than the deep ties we have with natural family members. Listen to this. I'm, go with me and just look at it. Matthew 12. This is not a, uh, an easy moment. In Matthew 12, I'm at verse 46. Jesus is in Capernaum, his, 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 his um, base city, you might say. And... He's teaching or ministering in some way. And someone comes and says, your mother and your brothers are out, outside waiting for you. He had six brothers, and we know at least two sisters. He had multiple sisters. So he's got, he's got a large family. And here they are outside. Verse 46, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside speaking to him. And someone said to him, behold, your mother and brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Let me tell you what they're there for. They're there to take him home. They think, he's, they think he's gone crazy. I don't know if Mary is into this thing or just being dragged along by the brothers. I think that would be the case. But it's an ugly moment. They think he's lost it. They think he is just, they need to take him home. And so the family has come to do an intervention, you might say. Uh, they're, they're taking Jesus back to Nazareth with them. So it's a very unpleasant moment in that sense. Listen how Jesus responds. Verse 48. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. He isn't divorcing his own family. He loves them. On the cross, he will take care of Mary. Uh, Goodness, I mean, he's not separating himself, but he's saying there's a higher level. These are my family. These are people that will be with me forever. Forever. He isn't trying to tear us away from our natural families. He wants us to love them. But sometimes knowing Jesus divides people. And he warned us that that might even happen in our own families. And I'll just tell you the quote there is where he says that if you come to him, he said, said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And he said, my influence, when I come into human relationships, I divide people. And he said, I'll divide father, uh, you know, fathers from their sons and mothers from their, from their daughters and, 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 and daughters from their mothers-in-law. I will bring a split. He doesn't want that to happen. But haven't you noticed that as Christ is formed in you, as you begin to walk with the Lord, people aren't just passive about it. It isn't like, oh, so that's your religion. Cool. When you begin to move on, it becomes offensive, troubling. It disturbs things. It just, he always will. It's the way it is. It's the way the world is. Jesus is real, and the human spirit recognizes that, and there is trouble when he comes around. So he's warning of that. Jesus unites those of us who love him and tends to separate us from those who don't which can leave us feeling very alone, which is why he's given us to each other and commanded us to love each other. He's placing us into his family, he said, and would you read this with me? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. If you have love, for one another. How do I want you to love each other? I want you to love each other with the same depth of commitment and personal sacrifice that I have loved you. And of course, what he did is give his life for us. This is a very radical statement. It doesn't say just be friendly and say hi to each other. He's saying, I want you to commit to one another to the point that you would die for each other. That's the level I'm inviting you into. That's what I want for my people. When Jesus rose from the dead, a new eternal spiritual family was begun. He is now the firstborn, the eldest son of a new race of humans, whom the father has adopted as his children. Right now, that reality is hidden from sight. But the day will come when we will be revealed in our resurrected bodies and share his glory. Yet here and now, while still living in this present age, he asks us to look at each other with new eyes. To look past the natural, the superficial, and recognize a beloved child of God. He's asking us to see what will be. The person you're sitting next to looks like a normal person, I trust, most cases. The day will come when that person will be resurrected glorious, shining with a brilliant light, 
And if you didn't know better, you'd fall down and start worshiping. Let me give you an an illustration of this. Do you know the name Corrie Ten Boom? She was just a tremendous woman. I actually heard her teach numerous times. Uh, when I was young, she was around in the various places I was, so I've, I've heard her a lot and uh, still have deep things in me that she taught me. And, and this is one of them that I'll never forget. Uh, she, one of the things she did quietly on the side was to have uh, children and, and young people who are, were mentally damaged. And she'd had them in her home. She would hold church. She would hold ministry for them. She, uh, it was just quietly one of the things. She didn't talk about it, but she did write a little book, if you want to see some of this, called Common Sense Not Needed. And, and she, she talks about just story after story of young people who had maybe Down syndrome or, or some kind of mental damage and how the Holy Spirit worked in their lives. In some cases, you, she, I, I heard her tell this, she, there was healing. But she said in other cases, there was not physical healing. But she said this, she said, what you have to distinguish is that even when a person's mental capacity is injured, their spirit is 100% intact. Did you hear that? And so she would talk about these, these, these children who would come to the Lord, who would, in, who would engage true repentance, who would, who would be just beaming with the Holy Spirit, who would be baptized in the Spirit. Their spirit was 100% intact. Now, when she was in, she, she actually went into a Nazi concentration camp and um, one of the officers called her in and wanted to know what she did and she, began, she mentioned that one of the things she did was care for, for uh, these children. And he was just shocked. I mean, you can imagine the Nazi thinking, why would you do that for this damaged individual and uh, she said because because Jesus sees a different person you know she and, and it, it, the next day he calls her in and he said I didn't sleep all last night um, he, he had dismissed her saying that's foolishness and then the Holy Spirit just you know because <laughs> this is going this is the truth breaking into that darkness isn't that beautiful now, he called her in three days in a row just, just to hear about all of this. You know what was going on. Uh, God was, was, was reaching his heart. Now, picture this. You have somebody who maybe never is healed. You have, a, you have somebody who is mentally damaged, but their spirit's full of God. Now, picture yourself the day you, you, you're stepping into heaven, and there that person is. Up comes to you some beautiful Young, healthy, bright, alert person. and says, hi there, do you remember me? No, I don't. Tell, who are you? Well, I'm so-and-so. Their spirit's intact. You and I have to begin to see the truth. To see who people really will be and are in the Lord. That's what Jesus is asking us to do. So we don't look at somebody's economic status. We don't look at somebody's health. That's why we, we, we value somebody in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the weakest, most sick 
parts of their lives doesn't matter to us, does it? Why? They're spirit. They're an eternal spirit. We get it. We see it. Our eyes are opened. If we will put aside old prejudices and fears and begin to see one another differently and choose to love one another genuinely, he says he will become a powerful prophetic voice to our, we will become a powerful prophetic voice to our community. They will observe in us a level of love and grace they do not see anywhere else. And they will know that Jesus must be real. All our religious talk loses all credibility if we do not manifest the love of God among ourselves. When, 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 when people from the outside look in and they see people of all kinds of diverse cultures and backgrounds and they see people loving each other and getting along with each other and forgiving each other and praying for each other and helping each other and living in that kind of thing, it is, it, there's nothing like it. Outside, everybody just wants the government to do it. All they know how to do is get angry at the government and demand they do more, don't they? Somebody else's money. But here you and I are caring for each other and loving each other and, and, and in the hospital with each other and, and in those painful moments with each other. We're standing with each other. and it's, it, it, it simply isn't reproducible apart from the presence of God. I'm going to, let's retell you the story now. I'm not going to read through the text, and I'm just in the interest of time. It bothers me a little bit, but I'll do it in the interest of time. But actually, this is, this is a translation and a paraphrase of the text anyway that I wrote. And I mean, how good can you get, huh? <laughs> All right. We're in Philippi. Remember this? We have seen Lydia, this, this businesswoman from Asia Minor, uh, has come to the Lord with her household at the riverbank. We have seen a, a demonically possessed young slave girl uh, who kept shouting out, these men are, are, are servants of the Most High, and they preached to you a way of salvation. Remember that? And she'd do that as they went through town. This was quite the, uh, quite the display. And then finally, Paul could take it no more, and he, he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. The Spirit left her instantly, and now this woman who'd been trafficked basically as an oracle for these two slave owners they're furious they take Paul and Silas the two Jewish looking ones and they drag them into the forum and put them in front of the city authorities uh, the colony authorities they just see that they're Jewish and don't listen to a thing they rip their robes off them uh, and I I think that's got to be a tremendously humiliating thing in itself, by the way. And then they have these men with bastinados beat them bloody. Throw them in jail. And you remember what happened. We talked about that, preparing for an earthquake. What did those two rabbis do? Sitting in stocks. They sat there and they began to speak truth into that horrible place by using the Psalms. They began to, to hymn. They began to hymn to God, either singing or speaking the truth of God into that darkness until they got themselves an earthquake. Literally, the spiritual climate changed and God shook open the doors of that place and shook every bond free. Every prisoner in the place was free. Uh, and yet they'd been listening and under the influence of this to such a degree, I think Paul must have said, we'll not flee. We'll wait. And God will watch over us. And so the whole place stayed. 
The jailer comes in, remember his response? First of all, it's in the pitch dark and he's, he can tell the doors are open and, and he, he despairs. He's sure they're all gone. And so he's about to fall on his sword and commit suicide uh, rather than go through the torture that they will do to him for having lost his prisoners. Remember this? Paul, Paul senses this is happening, cries out, don't, don't kill yourself. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. So the jailer asks for a light and he gets a, a, a lamp of some kind and brings it in. And looks at all of this. And as he sees the reality in front of him. He begins to tremble. Luke says. Not with fear. Luke just says he trembles within. So he just begins to tremble. And then he falls face down in front of of Paul and Silas. Doesn't even say anything. Just belly down man. Right in front of him. I am your servants. I don't know who you are. But you aren't like anything I've ever seen in my life. The power of God's there. He leads them outside. And he. He, he, he says, sirs, masters, king, lords, what must they do to be saved? And they then preach the gospel to him. That's where we pick up. Verse 33. A great deal of ministry took place under the cover of darkness. And before the city officials became aware something had happened at the jail. After Paul and Silas finished preaching the gospel to the jailer and his family, the jailer led them to a place where he, there was enough water to bathe the dried blood from their wounds. And when he finished caring for them, they in turn baptized him and the members of his family at that same place. Luke tells us the jailer brought them up into the house, which may mean the baptism took place at the river or another body of water, and then they all came back up from that place to the jailer's house, or the jailer may have lived in an upstairs apartment in or near the jail complex. In that case, he would have led them to a fountain or well and then brought them upstairs into his living quarters. So he has taken these two men with just welts and bleeding all over their backs and buttocks and legs uh, just miserable, and, they, and he takes them out to some kind of water, and says, he doesn't just wash them, he bathes their back. So I think he puts them in some sort of water, and just and, and carefully, you know, removing all of the blood and the dirt, and all of that kind of thing off of these men. And then once he's done that, he, he, they turn around, and in whatever body of water that is, they baptize him and his family his household, which means his relatives, but it'll also mean any servants that are there who, who believe. They preach to them all, and you have a baptismal service. And this is all in the darkness. This is all at night. Nobody in the city government knows anything. This is all happening under the cover of darkness. All right? One sins, then he takes them up into his, his, his apartment. Once inside, he placed a table near them and fed them a meal. Luke makes a very interesting statement. He says he put a table beside them. Well, that's not how you feed people in that culture. You lie down on one side and you have this 18-inch high table. Why would he put a table beside these guys? I think they're so wounded. They can't sit. They can't lie down. They can't sit down. I think they stand and he puts a table beside them and feeds them. Luke says he set a table beside them. Depending on their injuries, Paul and Silas may have stood beside a table rather than reclining in the customary manner. And while they ate, the whole family, along with many servants, apart any servants who may have believed, rejoiced before the Lord for their salvation. Knowing Paul, there can be no doubt their initiation into Christ included the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you agree with me? Yeah, come on, this guy is so Pentecostal. And 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 
he just is. He's just not going to have left these, these uh, men and women without that. So the expression of joy that took place in that home may well have included speaking in tongues and prophesying. Luke says they exalted. He didn't just say they were happy. They, they were doing something which often has to do with verbal praise and adoration. I mean, the, they're, they're eating while the family's just, you know, come. Let praise be exalted, God be exalted. I mean, they're, they're going for it in that household. It's quite the beautiful scene. Then at some point, Paul and Silas returned to their cells. Did you know that? Or at least remained somewhere in the prison complex to await the next step in their relationship with the city. Luke mentions nothing about the other prisoners who did not flee when the earthquake opened their cell doors, but it appears they too waited at the jail, probably hoping for leniency because they'd not fled when they had the chance but also with the knowledge that this jailer would surely treat them kindly in the future. When morning arrived, the two leaders who had ordered Paul and Silas beaten and jailed sent as messengers, listen to this, the very officers who'd performed the beating. Isn't that rude? The very men who had taken the bastinados and beaten these men are sent as messengers down uh, with with a message and with the command, release those men. They spoke these words to the jailer, and then he went and reported their words to Paul, saying, the men who govern the colony sent an order that you may be released. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul explained to them why he was not willing to leave the jail. He said, having beaten us bloody in front of the people. Now, the word he uses isn't just hit us. It's whomped us. Having really beaten us in front of the people without a trial. Men who are Romans, they threw us into prison and now they want to throw us out of the city secretly. No, indeed. And then he presented his demands. But let them come here themselves and lead us out. In other words, I want a public apology. Now, this is not petulance. This isn't Paul being ticked off. I I want you to follow this. In effect, he was demanding these leaders publicly acknowledge the injustice that had taken place. Apparently, Paul presented them with this defiant challenge as a way of protecting the Philippian believers he would leave behind. They would likely face a similar treatment if these leaders were not held accountable for this miscarriage of justice. He's putting his own freedom at stake right now. And he is challenging this situation and he wants a public apology. He wants the whole city to see that this was a miscarriage of justice and this should not be done because he's trying to protect his people. Basically, he wanted to scare them. He was accusing them of violating a very important Roman law which protected all Roman citizens from being punished without a trial. And he was a Roman citizen by birth which made the violation of his rights all the more serious. If these leaders were found guilty of this offense, they would be removed and disqualified from holding future office. In effect, the entire city could lose its special privileges as a colony. That's not just hype. The city of Rhodes did this. They killed a couple of Roman citizens without a trial. Man, they stripped them of their rights. They were done. Uh, They'll even kill some of these leaders. You do not mess with a Roman. You do not mess with a Roman. They have rights. You mess with those things, Rome's coming after you. And so when he said, men who are Romans, both he and Silas, you beat us publicly. You threw us in jail without any trial at all. 
They're in serious trouble if that comes back to Rome. And so this is real fear on their part. They have really overstepped their authority. And so down they come. As it turned out, his bold demand did not prevent all future persecution of believers in that city. But it may have delayed it. The officers returned and reported Paul's demands. And when the leaders heard that he and Silas were both Romans, they were afraid and personally came to the jail. They appealed to Paul and Silas to change their minds, probably by trying to convince them it had all been a misunderstanding. You know how that is. Oh, my, we thought you were, oh, oh, we are so sorry. How did that happen? Then they escorted them out of the jail complex and asked them to leave the city. Paul and Silas refused to leave immediately. Instead, they went straight to Lydia's house to gather all the believers in the city for a final meeting. And in that meeting, Luke says they exhorted them, which certainly means they rehearsed the central elements of the gospel and probably also gave them the same warning they gave elsewhere. Why don't you read that? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, they just say, look, suffering is part of this deal. You're, you're, you're in, this Christianity is going to get you in trouble. It has us, it will you. During their stay in Philippi, a very diverse group of people became members of the church. By calling them brothers. Now, Luke says, they went into Lydia's house... And they exhorted the brethren. Would you say the brethren? Yeah, it means men and women. Exhorted the brethren. Not the converts. Not the decisions for Christ. Not the jailer and Lydia and her family. My brothers and sisters. You see that? It's a deep attitude being shown here. Luke reveals the attitude of these missionaries toward their converts. They saw them as members of the same spiritual family to which they themselves belonged. Regardless of each one's personal history, none of these Philippians was a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. They had become brothers and sisters, meaning the missionaries respected them, loved them, and would, be, would feel a lifelong responsibility for their welfare. And as the years passed, the Philippian church proved that they felt the same way toward them. There's something, this is a bond. This is a true relationship that's established. Let me tell you something. This is the best church. Now, and remember who they are? We got, we, got a, we got a businesswoman from Asian Minor and her family, her household. We've got possibly this woman who's been a demoniac and, and a raving oracle who's now in her right mind. Another Mary Magdalene, probably. You, you've, got, you've got this jailer, this Roman, cruel, sadistic Roman jailer, and his family, his wife, his family, his servants, whomever else, and then whoever else has come to Christ at the riverbank. That's a ragtag bunch. And how do, they, how do the missionaries see them? Tell me, brothers and sisters. We didn't just go through town, get some decisions, Tell them all to pray every day and remember Jesus and leave. Paul will pray for them every day of his life. And they will pray for him. They love him. This is the most generous, faithful church that he will ever plant. Isn't that interesting? This, this group. Paul, Silas, and Timothy left Philippi, traveling west on the Ignatian Way. Luke, being a humble man, doesn't mention that he didn't leave with them. 
but simply stops including himself in the story. He no longer uses verbs in the first person plural, we, but returns to the third person plural, they. That this change in language indicates that he remained behind is made evident at Acts 20 verse 5. At that verse and on through much of the rest of Acts, he will again include himself. There, he describes Paul's return to Macedonia and specifically notes that Paul left from Philippi to sail back to Troas, the city where Paul originally met Luke. And as he describes that voyage, Luke returns to the first person plural. He says, we sailed from Philippi and came to Troas within five days and there we stayed seven days. Because Luke does not tell us about his own ministry during the the next approximately five years, those, those intervening years. While Paul went on to minister in other parts of Greece and Asia Minor, we can only guess at what he did during that time. But it appears Paul left him in Philippi to pastor this young church, just as he would later leave Timothy in Ephesus. Isn't that cool? Yeah, check it out. Don't, don't take my word for it, for goodness sakes. Uh, have a look at those, and you'll, you'll see when Paul comes back, he comes up through Macedonia and picks up Luke, and they then sail together. He's been, he's been at Philippi. He's been their pastor, I think. Hallelujah. Here we are, becoming a church. Please notice, Paul did not just make converts in Philippi and then leave. He baptized them and organized them into a church. Would you say baptized and organized? Yeah. All of them. And when he had to move on, he left Luke to pastor them because there was no one mature enough for that role yet, though there would in time be many in that city. If these tender young believers were to survive in that hostile Roman colony, they had to be drawn together into a strong community. It was essential that they learn to function as a group, as a team, as family. If they stayed separated from each other, trying to live out their Christian lives by themselves, only the strongest would survive. But they didn't. They came together and stayed together. I'll show you. Judging from Paul's letters, they became the healthiest church he founded. They, they beyond anyone else, continued for the rest of his life to pray for him, to send workers to help him. Do you recognize the name Epaphroditus, etc.? They would send people while he was in jail to take care of him. This church, this ragtag group in Philippi, that group, they would be the ones who'd send money to him. No one else. Other, no one else would help him. He's, and so what is he doing? He's working, supporting himself, supporting the workers with him, and trying to minister all afternoon. Philippi, they kept caring for him. They loved him. That was, it was worth it. This, this church, this group was worth it, man. Hallelujah. Um, they gave sacrificially to support him and as a missionary and to care for the poor in Jerusalem. When it talks about the Macedonian churches, you're talking about Philippi. They're the ones who wanted to give to the poor in Jerusalem. Picture that ragtag, diverse group of people meeting in Lydia's house to say goodbye to Paul, a businesswoman from Asia Minor, a slave girl in her right mind now, the city jailer and his family and servants and whoever else may have come to the Lord during the services at the riverbank. It all had happened in such a short period of time, weeks or at the most months, 
And then Paul, Silas, and Timothy were gone, leaving them to discover how to live out their discipleship in a dangerous city. But it worked. They made it. The church grew and in time became multiple churches in spite of being persecuted. How did they do it? This is, there's a simple point to this message today. I'm going somewhere. I want you to see something. Just listen to this now. Why did they develop so well when today so many who make decisions for Christ fall away or become Christians in name only or live wildly hypocritical lives? There are a number of answers to this question. First of all, these missionaries laid a solid foundation for their faith. They presented them with the real gospel, which included repentance, faith in Christ's finished work on the cross, and his physical resurrection. Did you hear that? They didn't give them a half-hearted gospel. They didn't give them a soft gospel. They, they gave them the full truth so that what happened inside was the real, the real new birth. They properly water baptized them. Have you been water baptized? I hope you have. Look, faith is in the heart, but you tell God of your faith through water baptism. This is a prayer. It's an acted out prayer where you say, I die with Christ, I rise with him. My Lord, I, I join myself to you. Jesus is the first one baptized and every Christian for 2,000 years, basically, we're all in a line. You come when you come to Christ and you get in a long line. You got, you got fathers and mothers by the millions in front of you who are following Christ. And we all get baptized. This is what we do. We're a people. This is the way we say yes to God. And so I just invite you, if you haven't been, I, you, you really need to be. They properly water baptized them, allowing to openly confess their faith. And it isn't mentioned, but there can be no doubt. Paul saw to it. They were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. You must have that too. You have been given it, but you, make, you receive the Holy Spirit. You really engage him. He would never have left believers without that because he knew how much they would need that inner power to overcome the flesh and to minister as Jesus did. But there was one more essential building block that made this church successful. They were willing to have their lives joined together to become one a new spiritual family, and to keep meeting and serving and giving together for the rest of their lives. Together, they could stand against anything, and they did. Listen to these words Paul wrote them about 10 years later. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or remain absent, he was in, he was in prison in Rome at the time, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, that means you all go in the same direction, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. See, they're being persecuted. For, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me when I was there, and now here to be in me, I'm in prison at the moment. He says, you guys are getting thrown in prison. You, I don't know if they're getting beaten publicly. You're going through the same kind of thing that I did. Stay together. Did you hear this? Stay together. Love each other. Work side by side. Common mind, common vision, common direction. Don't, don't fragment. Stay together. Then he went on to plead with them to keep loving each other, keep working together in harmony, to stay focused on a common goal, 
and to refuse to become conceited and look down on other believers. In fact, to regard one another as more important than yourselves. Facing the future. When asked to explain the signs of his return, Jesus gave his disciples a brief checklist of things to watch for. And in that list, he made it clear that as the end drew near, his people would face persecution. Of course, we don't know where we are on God's timeline, whether we're near the end or not. But we do know that over the past 2,000 years, persecution has repeatedly arisen in waves, and it's hard to ignore the fact that our own culture, which once considered itself Christian, is beginning to turn against the church. I'm not trying to frighten anyone, but are you aware of what I'm saying? Would you look with me at just at Matthew 24 for a second? I am not going to go at length in this, but I just want you to sample a little bit of what I'm saying. The other day it was spontaneous. I, I just, we were having a staff meeting and I, I said, I, I just want to share with you how, how I see things as, as the pastor. I, you know, the way, I'm, the way I'm thinking, some of the things I'm doing, some of the ways we lead, some of the emphasis we have. I want you to understand that there's an, un, there's an attitude in the back of my heart. And the attitude is that I don't know how much longer we have freedom. I don't know how much longer we have the ability to meet like this and worship like this and have all of the resources we have and the freedom we have. I'm not trying to set a date. I'm not being frightening. But I also think there's a wisdom. There's a wisdom that says, okay, if this is where things seem to be moving, let's prepare for it now. Let's prepare for it now. And how do you prepare for it? Well, one, you make strong disciples. You, you just pump the word into people. Because the word will be harder to get. And so you pump the word of God. And then you must train people in the skills to care for each other. To have church in the home. To teach the word to each other. To pray for each other and, pray and lay hands. Because there won't be, necessarily, the same kind of professional trained uh, staff and those kinds of things to care for us. And so it has to become organic more and more. Why do I have the daily Bible studies? All those kinds of things. It's just making all of that. If we go into the home, if we go, if we at some point we need to go underground, we do. Matthew 24, they asked Jesus, what is the sign of your coming? The end of the age. And, and I'll just read a few of these verses. He says, uh, see to it, verse 4, that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And you will see that, see that you're not frightened for these things must take place. But that's not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then, okay, once you move into that season as, as his coming draws closer it shifts into a time when they will deliver you to tribulation and then he describes a, a terrible tribulation and he's and, and he says many will fall away in that time many christians under the persecution and pressure of 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 of, uh, of a hostile government people will walk away from god they would rather have safety and they'd rather be uh, uh, accepted than they would be willing to, to pay the price and they'll betray one another and hate one another. All kinds of uh, trouble will come into the life of the, of, of the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about. 
False prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness has increased, people's love will grow cold. Many people will separate from each other with all the betrayals, with all the suspicion, with all the stuff. It'll divide people, pull them apart. And then he says, he who endures to the end will be saved. We have to be, there has to be a people that can be strong through this time. Our culture, which once considered itself Christian, is beginning to turn against the church. Many individuals aren't. Many are coming to Christ. How many did Frank say we had come to the Lord last month? Yeah, we had 100 the month before, too. So it's just been amazing time. So it's not people. The American people aren't turning against God in mass. There's not that happening at all. Many people are soft and open to the Lord, hungry for God. They're hurt and wounded, but they're ready. So they're not the issue. But the media, the academic world, and the government seem to be. The Christian moral consensus that once governed us is being removed as fast as possible. And a subtle hostility is growing. We find ourselves asking, where is all this going? How aggressive is this going to become? And none of us knows. There are events that could push this tide back, at least for a season. But given the direction of things, it seems we would be wise to learn how to care for one another. To meet in small groups where we study the word together and to pray for each other. And if we learn to do that, nothing can stop us. The city of Philippi couldn't stop that ragtag group that met in Lydia's home. And today, governments all over the world can't stop the explosive growth of the church. Because in much of the world, believers still act just like those Philippians. New believers are still welcomed into a new family when they receive Christ. They don't need big buildings. They meet in homes and on riverbanks or sidewalk cafes. They study the word together, eat together, pray together, just like the book of Acts. And if 2,000 years of history has proven anything, it's proven that nothing can stop the church of Jesus Christ from advancing. We just keep growing. The only time churches die is when they stop being the true church. I was listening on Friday to KGNW in the afternoon. Doug Bursch, you know, he has that afternoon show. And he had uh, somebody who worked for a thing called Transworld Radio, which has a broadcast tower apparently in Guam. that's 200,000 watts of, of power and goes through all of China. And they, and they preached to China. Well, the fellow was saying the estimates right now uh, by sociologists and people is that 10,000 people a day are in China are coming to Christ. Now, you know that's a communist government, don't you? And they're not exactly preaching the gospel. Uh, this, they've lived in, in that kind of adversarial environment, but they can't stop it. They virtually are having to accommodate it in various ways because it simply won't stop. And we have tried. You are having places on earth, on, on earth where so many people are coming to the Lord. I, I was hearing of a church the other day uh, where it's, so, it's such a large church. This, I think, is in Lagos, Nigeria. It's so large that if you decide to go forward and receive Christ, they actually have uh, motorized vehicles that you get on <laughs> that will take you because it's a quarter of a mile from the back of the church to the front. <laughs> Come on. Now, we don't need a motorized vehicle yet. Um, yeah. that kind of thing is going on all over the earth. Jesus is moving beautifully. He's not losing. 
I'm simply saying we're watching our own culture change. I don't know what the pace of things are. I'm, we are not to be afraid. Paul will go actually on and say, don't be alarmed by this. He said, but you're to be bold and confident, which is a sign of destruction for your opponents. He goes on. He says that to the Philippians. But we should do this. You and I, if, if, you're, if you're living your Christian life out right now alone, kind of isolated, and you attend meetings, you, you, you bop around to churches, at, at some point, I think it's time for you to say, I need to be integrated. I need to be in a family. I need brothers and sisters who know me, who pray for me. I need to be praying for them. I need to know how to study the word of God for myself. I need to know how to pray for the sick and have them pray for me. I, we need to begin to, as it were, shoulder this basic, these basic Christian skills so no, no matter what happens, we just go viral. We just go right on into the community. If we can't have our large meetings, we have it in tomes. And we need to learn the skills now. Am I frightening you at all? I don't mean to be. I, think, I don't mean to frighten you at all. We shouldn't be afraid. I'm very buoyant. I think we have, I think we're just seeing, I think we're in the middle of revival. I think God's moving. I, I'm not at all worried that way. But you can't miss the signs. And so I do think we should be wise. The churches that die is when they stop being the true church, meaning they stop preaching the gospel, stop baptizing believers, stop ministering the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, stop meeting together, stop studying the word, stop praying for the lost and sick, stop delivering those who are tormented by demons, stop believing in the resurrection of the dead and the physical return of Jesus Christ. In other words, they stop being real, the real church, and they simply collapse. Again, listening this week to uh, Christian television, uh, they said the three largest churches in England, and they mentioned them, and I have, I, 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 actually, I know of all three. One was Holy Trinity Brompton. Now, Holy Trinity Brompton is a spirit-filled, I mean, praying for the sick, casting out devils, group of Anglicans. Yes, folks, it can happen. And it's been a, it's been a great church for, for decades. The next one they mentioned was Hillsong's uh, London, and that's an Assembly of God <laughs> root. And the third one was, it's a Nigerian church. I don't remember the name of it, but I've heard of it. It's the largest church in England and it's just massive. And it's this Nigerian pastor. And he has been, again, very Pentecostal. People, this is the move of God around the world. It is, it is, it is, it is Pentecostal. It is people who, who, who believe in the power of God, who pray for the sick, who cast out devils. This is the power of the early church. I've just been reading, I'm halfway through it, uh, a book called um, Christianizing the Roman Empire, uh, 100 to 400 AD by Ramsey McMullen. He's not a Christian. He's a historian. And that makes it almost all the more interesting. And, and he says, what caused the Roman Empire to become basically dominated by the Christian culture and the Christianity in 400 years. What, what happened? And he concluded this. One, it was not a rising tide of piety. There wasn't a, sort of a, a religious interest in the, in the people of the Roman Empire. He said what it was was two things. Now hang on to this. He said, first of all, it was, it was, it was um, the, the Christians were, were Pentecostal people who cast out your devils, and they had a lot of devils. A lot of demonics. So you have this group of people, 
people like Gregory the Miracle Worker. That was the name of the guy. You know, I thought the power of God kind of went out of business at about 90 AD or something. I didn't, you know, everybody teaches that kind of thing. Not at all. Very, very much people full of the Holy Spirit, casting out devils, praying for the sick, all of that kind of stuff. And that was dramatic and people needed the power of God. And he said the second thing is they preached the gospel with hell. And that was not normal. People were accepting everybody's religion for the most part. I mean, you had to pinch Caesar to pinch incense to Caesar, you know, that kind of stuff. That was political. And, but the religious world said everybody's sort of right. And then along came Christians and said, no, there's, there's a God in heaven. And there's, there's a one way to be saved. And if you, don't, if you reject Jesus Christ, you perish. Well, they didn't like it, but it bugged them. And it would work on people's conscience. It began to trouble them. And people began to feel, I got to get right with God. I got to get right with God. So there was a move of God. Christianity, the powerful kind, the kind that changes cultures, has never changed. It's always been the same thing. And as you and I are willing to walk in the kind of religion that those Philippians believed. And the kind of life they had together. He won't stop us either. It'll be as powerful for us as it was for them. It is already. It's amazing that the church in Philippi succeeded. It's a miracle. Such an unlikely group of people against such overwhelming opposition. But they stood firm. Because they stood together. You know they must have faced the same divisive issues we face today. But they refused to be controlled by them. They chose to come together and refused to abandon one another so nothing could stop them. Now, you and I, facing the changing culture we face, need to decide to do the same. Number one, you and I need to decide where God has called us to be part of his family. Which imperfect group of people has God given me to to be my brothers and sisters? If you're looking for the perfect place... You're, you know, you're on a yellow brick road to Oz. I mean, there, there just isn't one. And, and so there's what, what it comes to, uh, next service, we're going to receive new members. And, and the thing that, that, that we say to our new members is, really, we're not trying to get your name on a list. Has God called you here? This isn't a cult. If he calls you elsewhere, you can leave. But it shouldn't be just, I go here because, well, it's close. There's a sense inside God's put me with a group of brothers and sisters to live out my faith. To, to, to have to forgive and be forgiven. To have to work side by side in ministry. Not just attend a service. But he's put me into a family. Number two. You and I need to decide to learn how to be the church in our own living rooms. In coffee shops and on park benches. To go beyond only attending large gatherings. I know we're busy. We're all busy. But there needs to be a place in the way we reprioritize our lives. So there is space in our lives for each other. You just have to reprioritize things. You just have to make it happen. Where there's time for an LTG. There's time for a life group. There's, there's time for me to get together with several believers at lunch where I work. And we work, go through the Bible together. Where, we, I'm, where I'm I'm doing ministry, not just receiving it. And thirdly, you and I need to see each other with God's eyes. To look past the superficial. 
to recognize the eternal. God's put together with us a ragtag group of all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. Isn't that beautiful? Just like Philippi, the best church Paul founded, the most faithful, giving, generous congregation he founded. All kinds of people come, came together and decided to see each other as eternal family, not simply as people who lived in the same city. As we close, listen to how Paul felt about the church in Philippi. Why don't you read this with me? It's just a beautiful statement. Listen, read it slowly. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. How did he feel about them? He loved them. They loved him. Blessed be God. Would you stand with me? I'm thinking right now of an of a Irish pastor that I, about a church Mary and I attended to when we, were, when we were in Minnesota. And he had this strong Irish brogue. He was a good, he was a good man. Ernest O'Neill was his name. And we attended there for at least a full year or two while I was going to school. And... Um, he would always address us, and we were just, a, for the most part, a bunch of college students. It was, it was right on the campus of the University of Minnesota. And he'd always address us this way. He says, beloved. I can't do that Irish program. I wish I could. Beloved. I'm not even close. But he meant it. That old guy loved us. We loved him. That's how we're to feel about each other. We're beloved, beloved of God, and we're beloved of each other. It's a precious thing we've been invited into. Oh, Holy Spirit, you who love us the way you do. We hear the word of God and we see our example in the Philippian church. They came together with one heart and one mind. And they loved each other. They served side by side. They took that city. They became many churches in that city. Oh God, would you give us such love for each other? Would you give us the eyes to see? Not afraid, but the world we live in. And then would you give, show us the resources you have given us? That you have equipped us from the very beginning with the tools we need to survive and to thrive in any situation. Lord, I pray that if any of us just need to take a step of faith to, to belong, to open our hearts, to, to make a new level of commitment that we will not be afraid. And Lord, if it's not here, you'll show people where else it is. There are a lot of fine congregations of, and families of God. But thank you for planting us, knitting us, sewing us in where we belong. And we declare in the future... You are faithful to us, and you will never forsake us. That You are with us always, even to the end of the age. Blessed be the Lord who calls us beloved. 
Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.